Today's sermon text is from Nehemiah 8, verses 1 to 3 and 9. It can be found on page 403 in the Pew Bible. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square, before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This is the holy, this is this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before I jump in, um, just a reminder, tomorrow, as we go out to hand out flyers, this really is an all-hands-on-deck event, and so if you are able-bodied and able to walk, please consider coming um, uh, to help hand out flyers, uh, because again, if if people don't know about it, they can't come. So, just a plug, we'll be meeting here at 6.30 tomorrow, but let's open with a quick word of prayer. Father, we ask that you will send your spirit among us, that our hearts might be ready to receive what it is you want to speak to us. We offer this time up to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, We live in a time when it is sometimes pretty difficult to distinguish between what is fact and what is fiction. Uh, it can be hard to tell when we can believe someone, when we can't believe someone. There are very few, if any, institutions or people who have wide trust, who most people would say, yes, if they say it, I know it's true. We live in a time that has a lot of skepticism, a lot of cynicism, and the reason is we also live in a time where there's a lot of misinformation, people pretending to say things that are true that are not true, and it's hard to tell sometimes what's real, what's not real. Now, it's interesting, when you look at uh, our history, this is a pretty new phenomenon. Fifty years ago, the way we Americans, I wasn't alive back then, I know you may be shocked, but fifty years ago, the Americans who were alive at that point, the way they received news was very different. In fact, there was one specific news anchorman who dominated the airwaves. Can anyone tell me who that would have been? Walter Cronkite, right. He was the anchorman for uh, ABC's Evening News, And for 20 years, he was the most watched newsman in America. If he said it, it was true. In fact, there was a Gallup poll during his kind of 20 years of dominance that found that Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. Uh, And so if you're wondering what's true, what's not true, you just listen to Walter Cronkite. In fact, it's uh, it's alleged that Lyndon B. Johnson decided not to run for re-election because he didn't have Walter Cronkite's backing and his LBJ's, again, alleged to have said, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost Middle America. So in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, if we want to know what was true, we knew where to look. And then in the 80s and 90s, we get the, the beginning of what's called cable news, which are, new, which are uh, uh, TV networks that are dedicated to the 24-hour news cycle. 
It was a brand new thing. It used to just be a news hour at the end. These are now 24-7. And you get uh, the kind of three major cable news networks, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. And so now all of a sudden you have a plethora of places to go for news. And one of the big differences, though, is that all of these quickly becomes clear that they have very, very predictable and competing biases, all of them. Uh, whether or not they claim to be objective, they all are, in the end of the day, with, uh, they all have pretty predictable political and ideological biases. And so you have instances where you have one event and you have major networks saying diametrically opposing things about it. The beginning of the confusion is, or the confusion is starting to begin. Who do you trust? Who do you believe? And then we get to the advent of the internet and social media, and it kind of takes it to the next level. I remember in 2012 or 2013, there was a, it was kind of all over the news, but researchers began to find out that a large portion of Americans, in fact, a majority of Americans, were now finding their news through social media, through what was being shared on Facebook, on Twitter, and I don't know if you can share stuff on Instagram. And the terrifying thing about that is that there are no gatekeepers on social media, at least no trusted ones, no moderators. Anything goes. And so someone can post something, and it can go viral and be seen as fact when it's a complete fiction. Again, how do we know fact from fiction? And we look at today, we experience an overwhelming number of information sources. You still have the traditional news outlets of CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, but now you have YouTube personalities and TikTok personalities and all kinds of outlets for news it can be overwhelming. And it's not just the quantity of sources for information, but everyone has become highly partisan. Everyone is balkanized. There is no objective arbiter. Everyone's got their own spin on the news. And so it really can feel like who, there are times when, when there's just stuff out there and you're like, it's hard to tell what's real and what's not real. And, I, and I'll say this, as Christians, as people who value truth, we worship Jesus Christ and said, I am the way, the truth, and life. Uh, we need to develop skills to be able to distinguish between fact and fiction. That's not my point here. It's just a side note. Uh, we don't just want to believe something because we see it on social media. But as Christians, we have one gigantic advantage in the context we live in, because everyone lives in this context. We have one gigantic advantage, which is that we have a word that we know is true. And it's not just the word of a human, even a very clever human, but in fact, it's God's own words. Now, we're beginning a new series on our church values. If you remember last fall, myself and the deacons, we went away for, well, we didn't really go away, but we took a retreat on a weekend, and we looked at who are we as a church, what makes us unique, what has made this place uh, a special place, and where do we want to be as a church? And we came up with four values. These four values are uh, biblical faithfulness, spiritual maturity, compassionate service, and local ministry. And these are both uniquely reflective of our church, but they're also aspirational, which means they're also ones that we're striving towards in the future. We haven't just arrived. And there's a mix of both of them. And we're beginning with biblical faithfulness. This is going to be a four-part series where we'll look at each one of these values. Um, and we're going to start with biblical faithfulness. And to give you the basic idea this morning, we want to be biblically faithful as a church because we believe in the Bible, God has actually spoken and continues to speak. Okay, that's the one-line overview. So our outline is first, God spoke. Second, God speaks. And then third, what that means for us. 
So first point, God spoke. Christianity is a religion that is based on revelation. It is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. It's fundamental to how we develop theology, how the church is developed. We exist because God has spoken to us. He didn't reveal himself through pictures, through intuitions, through cultural developments. He didn't even reveal himself to us through his creation. He spoke. And as we unpack that, it has massive ramifications for what it means to be a Christian. And I, wanna, and I don't want you to take my word for this. I'm going to go through Scripture and kind of show this to you. We're going to be looking at a lot of text this morning. I'm not going to apologize for that, but just warn you. Hold on to your seats. Try as best you can to keep up. We're going to look at two foundational events in the Old Testament to draw out this theme that God spoke to us, and therefore we know. The two foundational events, the first one is the calling of Abraham. This is the beginning of redemptive history. Uh, everything has gone wrong. Everything has is, 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 is just gone crazy and chaotic. And then God calls this man, Abraham, who's just a, a pagan in modern-day Iraq, idol-worshiping pagan, and he gives him promises. And this is where the gospel begins. But how does God reveal himself to Abraham? Well, there's a very familiar passage for many of us, Genesis 12, 1 through 4. I really only need to read the first four, ver- four words, but I'll read the whole thing. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. You will be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham departed as the Lord had told him. What begins the story? Again, it's not uh, Abraham going into some cave and studying for years and coming to these conclusions. It's God just speaks. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. A next major event in the Old Testament is the giving of the law. This was the revelation of God's holiness. His character was laying out, it was laying out the pattern for the gospel, the categories we would need to understand sin and redemption and substitution. And how does it happen? How do they get it? Do they, do they create a, a committee who goes to the surrounding nations and looks at various legal systems, and then they come and brainstorm, and, and they come up with the law? No. Look at Deuteronomy 4, 11 through 13. This is actually later reflecting back. God is reminding Israel of their histories, and you came near. This is at Mount Sinai where they received the law. And you stood at the foot of the mountain, and while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom, and then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. It was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. God spoke the law to the people. Again, biblical Christianity begins with God speaking to us, with him revealing himself to us. Again, not through images, not through community participation, but through God just speaking, unilaterally speaking to us. But in the Bible, it's not just the place where we see direct speech from God that is God speaking. It's not just places where it says, thus saith the Lord. But in the Bible, all of it is God speaking to us. I don't have time to get into all of this, but a very common passage we'll look at to understand how this is, is 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, look, when Jeremiah the prophet said X, 
you could also say, therefore God said X. Even if Jeremiah is not saying, thus saith the Lord, where the prophet spoke, it was not just him speaking. It was him speaking out of his own human agency. Jeremiah didn't somehow go into a trance and begin uttering words of divine mysteries. He was speaking out of his own human agency, but yet the Spirit of God is undergirding it so that it is the words of God himself. And so all of Scripture is not just the words of Moses or Isaiah or the Apostle Paul, but it's actually God speaking. His Spirit was, was, was working in the, in the composition of the Bible. So we have is the very words of God speaking. God spoke. B.B. Warfield, uh, he was the president of Princeton Seminary many, many years ago in the 1870s, probably one of the best defenders of biblical authority inspiration still. 150 years later, you can't find a better, uh, more compelling case to be made for the Bible's inspiration. But he points out that the Bible often one of the interesting arguments B.B. Warfield makes is that the biblical witness to itself is that it is God speaking. The way the Bible refers to itself, there is this assumption that whatever, the, whatever is being said in the Bible is actually God speaking. Its own internal witness suggests this. And so there's places in the Bible where it'll, inter, uh, it'll use interchangeably God said and Scripture said. Like those two phrases can be used interchangeably. So for instance, this is, this is a little bit abstract, but hang with me. Galatians 3.8, it says the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and scripture announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. That's the passage you just read in Genesis 12. But the thing is, in Genesis 12, it's God speaking, announcing the gospel. But here Paul calls it scripture. He's interchanging God said and Scripture said. And the point is, is that whatever Scripture says can also be said God says. Not that the Bible is God, but in the, in, 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 in the biblical authors, God speaking and Scripture speaking were so interchangeable they could even just interchange whether it was God speaking or Scripture speaking. This is the internal witness of Scripture. God spoke. And for a Christian, we know about God, we know about ourselves, all that we know about ourselves about God comes from a spoken revelation that's been written down. Here's an interesting contrast. As we've been going out into the neighborhood and, and meeting people, it's been honestly an incredible blessing because um, there's nothing more wonderful than talking to people about religious things, spiritual things. I mean, if we believe the gospel, there's something in us that comes alive when we begin to share it, my experience. Um, but when you ask people in this neighborhood or anywhere, you know, uh, is there a God? Most people say yes. There's a few diehard atheists, but most people believe there's something beyond physical reality. And if you ask them, do you want to know God? They'd probably say, yeah. But if you ask them, how do you know God? That's where you get the blank stares. It's like, ah, uh, I don't know. That, <laughs> we literally had one guy say, that, that's the question, isn't it? Um, and some will say, well, you know, I experienced God through music, the beauty of music. I experienced God through creation, the beauty of creation. And I think oftentimes, I mean, what they're, what they're, what they're referring to, or there are times when, you know, God's witness to himself is so abundantly clear we can't deny it, such as in the beauty of music and creation. But it's an incredibly subjective way to try to know who God is. And at the end of the day, music can't tell us much about who God is. As Christians, we see God throughout the world. We see his witness throughout the world. But we know God 
because he's spoken to us. He's told us who he is. In the Bible, God actually spoke. That means the Bible must always be central to what we do as Christians. But here's the thing. The Bible isn't just a record of God having spoken in the past. It's not just that God spoke. But in the Bible, God continues to speak to us today. That's the second point. God speaks. Again, God spoke. It's actually him speaking in the Bible. It's a record of what God has said. Yet God speaks. He is still speaking today. How? God speaks today through his word. The Holy Spirit takes the message of the Bible and makes it real to us. And it takes the words that God has spoken, and all of a sudden they bring conviction, and we realize the spiritual realities we are dealing with, and it sets everything in perspective, and it transforms us. It is God speaking to us. We see the sense of this in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so that we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. Okay, here's where it gets what I'm trying to get at. But people who aren't spiritual, and what that means is people who don't have the Spirit of God, so in other words, non-Christians, people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. Why? Because it sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. You don't have to be a Christian to understand the Bible. There are biblical scholars who are brilliant scholars who understand what Paul is saying very well and yet believe it's garbage. Because the Spirit of God has not taken it and made it real to them. They see it as a record of something that happened long ago, but it is not God speaking to them. But the Bible speaks to us today again when the Holy Spirit takes these words and all of a sudden, they're real to us. And that's what we saw in Nehemiah 8. Um, <laughs> I picked that to read beforehand, not because we're going to exegete it. As you can see, we're looking at a lot of passages. But if you remember in Nehemiah 8, Ezra is reading the law, and as the, the law is read, the people begin to weep. Now, there's a lot of instances of the law being read in the Old Testament, and not many times when the people begin to weep. What's going on? God is speaking to them through his word. He's taking his law, which was something he had spoken many centuries before, and all of a sudden he's making it real to them. God speaks. He still speaks through his word. And we've all experienced this. We've read a passage a hundred times. Then all of a sudden, one morning or one day, you read it, and it's like God is speaking to you. Something that was written 2,500 years ago is all of a sudden like it was written for you. And everything, it's like the, you know, it's like all of a sudden you're like, oh, I see. That's God speaking to us. As his spirit takes the word and makes it real. In the Bible, God has spoken definitively. In the Bible, God continues to speak to us. As his spirit takes the message and makes it real. Now I have two quick, more devotional applications before we move on to our third point, which is kind of the application what do we do with this? But some quick applications. Since God speaks to us as his spirit makes the word real to us, we can never separate the Bible and the spirit. In our context, you have your spirit Christians who are typically Pentecostal, charismatic, and they believe in the Holy Spirit. And then you have your Bible Christians who typically are not Pentecostal, charismatic, 
and, um, and they have the Bible. But you got to have both. You can't have one or the other. If we only have the Bible, but we don't have the spirit, the Bible just turns into an intellectual puzzle. And we're just trying to, to memorize like something we want to conquer, something we want to master. Whereas if we only have the spirit but no scripture, then we just get lost in subjectivities. We need both. And so when we, be, when, when we come to our own personal scripture reading time, again, I grew up in the Bible side of this picture, and so it's very often to have kind of a formality of a prayer. Lord, help me to read your word. Amen. But if we understand that only if the Spirit of God begins to take God's word and make it real to us, that's the only way that it's going to have any effect on us, then our, our prayers cannot be just formalities. We got to plead with God. God, open my eyes. Spirit, make these realities real to me. Bring conviction, because on my own, my, my heart's dead. We can never separate the Spirit and the Bible. Second application is that the ultimate goal of Scripture reading is to always be communion with God. The final goal has got to be to know God and be in relationship with Him. When Mark and I first started dating, we wrote emails, especially in those like couple months where we were just getting to know each other. Uh, she was in San Antonio, Texas. I was in Washington, D.C. And we just, we wrote a ton of emails. Long emails. The emails you write when you are first in love. And I read those emails and reread them and reread them and reread them. And the reason I read them so closely, to the point where I probably had memorized them, is because I just, I was very interested in Mariko. And I was like, I want to know this girl. I want to be in a relationship with her. I just want to know about her. That's a very different way. And so, and so I read these, her emails very, very closely. It's a very different way of reading than, for instance, when Mariko read her textbooks in medical school. She also read those very closely and reread them and reread them. But she had no desire to know the author of those books. That was not her goal. The goal was simply to learn the information and retain it so that she could put it out in, in, on a test. The Bible is much, much, much more like a letter written to us than it is like a textbook. Again, I learned a whole lot about Mariko through those emails. I, I had her emails almost memorized, but it was not because I just wanted to cram a bunch of information in my head. It's because I was falling in love with this girl, and I wanted to know her. Because Scripture is God speaking to us, it's his personal communication to us. It's much more like a letter than it is like a textbook. God spoke. You know, we want to be biblically faithful because we believe in the Bible that God has actually spoken and that through the Bible, God continues to speak. So what does that mean for us? I give some applications, but... Honestly, the more we begin to reflect on what it means that Christianity is fundamentally a Bible-based religion, I mean, God has revealed himself to us, he's spoken. The more you reflect on this, the more it begins to just shape how we understand discipleship and Christianity. And there's many ways, there's many things that this should mean for us. I could go on for a long, long time, but I'm just going to go with three. Three ways, I think, Three things that I think this means for us, that God spoke and that he speaks through his word. And the first is that because God spoke and still speaks through scripture, that means that we will continue to make scripture central to our gatherings. Uh, it seems like every five years there's another um, Christian fad about, you know, 
We need to get away from the Bible. We need to do other things that are more relevant, yada, yada, yada. The fads will come and go. Because God spoke and speaks, we will make Scripture central to our gatherings. Because at the end of the day, we gather. Why? We gather because we want to know God. We want to be in relationship with God. That, I'm convinced, is a basic human desire. Again, if you go out into this neighborhood, most people are not Christians. Most people don't attend a church of any kind. But if you ask them, do you want to know God? And they speak honestly, it's yes. We all intuitively long to know God. And so if we have something that is God speaking to us, where we can know that he continues to speak to us through his spirit, what else would we want to do when we gather than read his word and sing his word and, and preach his word? Because God spoke and still speaks, Biblical faithfulness means that we will keep the Bible central in our services, unapologetically. That's not going to change, no matter what new Christian fad or, you know, blog post is being written. Second, what does this mean for us? Because in the Bible God spoke and still speaks, it means that we will strive to bend our wills and our desires to Scripture. It's not enough just to have the Bible present like an ornament here on this table, it's a nice Bible, or to you know, even read it. We've got to actually believe it and obey it and do what it says and conform our lives to it. And so we as a church, if we want to be a church that is, that is marked by biblical faithfulness, we're all of us in that same boat. Hey, our, our culture as a church is we're trying to bend our wills and our desires to what Scripture says because it's God speaking to us. Whatever he says is right. And this is really important because first, and we need to commit ourselves to this as a church because there will always be parts of Scripture that are hard to understand and parts that are hard for us to accept. For every single person in this church, parts where we just come to and say, God, I just don't, don't understand this. How can this be saying what it's saying? And so we have to commit up front because this is not just an interesting, inspired word, but it's God speaking we're as a church, we're going we're gonna to bend our wills and our desires to Scripture rather than vice versa because that's always going to be the temptation for all of us in those areas that's just hard for us to accept. But second, the reason why we want to commit to bend our wills and our desires to Scripture is that that allows us to have good faith disagreements over secondary matters that are not clear. There are doctrinal issues that are secondary issues that Christians looking at the same scriptures, trying to understand it, trying to bend their wills and desires to it, can come to disagreements. And if we as a church have a culture where we're like, what matters most is what scripture says, then we can have those disagreements and not be worried about some kind of theological drift. Because we know we all have the same goal, which is to live out and obey and know and love God through his word. And so when we come to places of scripture that aren't as clear, we're able to have those good faith disagreements without questioning each other's salvation. So second, what that means for us is that we're gonna, we, we as a church must bend our wills and our desires to scripture. Third, is that we will work to prioritize what God prioritizes in his word and show grace and charity on secondary matters. My first seminary at Southern, in fact, the first summer I was at Southern. I immediately was looking for ways to serve. I wanted to get some preaching and teaching experience. At that time, the seminary had a partnership with a retirement home where you'd go on Sunday night 
and lead a church service for a lot of the residents who were unable to go to church because they were either too old or unable to get out. So I signed up, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm like a month into seminary. I'd spent five years after college doing stuff I didn't want to do because it wasn't an option yet for me to go to seminary. And so finally I'm in seminary, and I am, I am Mr. Eager Beaver. And so I prepare at least 20 hours on this 15-minute sermonette. I'm preaching on the first beatitude, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of God. And I'm driving with Marco, and I, I'm just like, I'm going to crush this. I'm so, so convinced. In fact, I, I memorized it. I don't even have notes. I just feel so good. And we get there, and immediately I'm like, this is, this is going to be interesting. So I'm expecting that there's a chapel. No chapel. We're like located at the, in the front foyer where there's multiple uh, hallways. We're next to the dining area where you can hear the clink of like, you know, glasses and silverware. And so there's all kinds of ambient noise. The, the, you know, uh, the acoustics were awful. Just, you know, you're, you're, the sound would just evaporate. And so I start, and, and, and very quickly I realize Half of the people here uh, can't hear me, and the half that can hear me, I'm not sure understand what's going on. And so this is just not going well. About seven minutes in, I have one uh, uh, resident who is rather cranky just snap at me and say, young man, I need you to speak up and stop moving. And I just am like so flustered, I lose my place. Again, I don't have notes. Where do you, what do you do? And so I just, I pray and end the sermon. <laughs> It's just like, I make an executive decision, we're landing this now. And so uh, I had some time, because I only preached for seven minutes. And so I thought, okay, well, let's, let's just talk about what I said so far. So I said, does anyone have any questions or any thoughts on the sermon? And, um, and that same dear sister, rather cranky, says, I want to know, why do some people say Holy Spirit and some people say Holy Ghost? And I was like, well, that's salt on the wound, because that has literally nothing to do with what I preach. Yes, it says poor in spirit. That's not referring to the Holy Spirit. And I mean, you, you missed, I mean, it was only seven minutes, but you missed it all. <laughs> and I think sometimes when God looks down on the churches in America, he's thinking the similar thing. Even in churches that claim to be gospel-centered, too often, not always, but too often, we pay lip service to the gospel, but what really gets us motivated, excited, organized, and moving are other things, secondary things, whatever it may be. And let's just be clear, secondary teaching, secondary doctrine, secondary issues are not unimportant. It's just where is our emphasis going to be as a church? I think if we really believe this is God speaking to us, then we should pay attention to what's important to God. What does he prioritize? And hey, let's prioritize the same thing. So first, let's see what the Bible emphasizes. That's the first thing we should prioritize. What is the Bible fundamentally about? It's about the forgiveness and the redemption of humanity through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards Christ. Everything in the New Testament is about Jesus and his life and then what it means that he has risen from the grave. That's the emphasis. Again, it's not the only important thing in the Bible. What I'm trying to say is if we really believe that Jesus rose from the grave, like we, we really think three days later, he, he came back to life. It's like, that puts everything else in perspective. It's not unimportant, but it's far less important. So for example, you know, church polity, it's important. 
how we govern a church, how we organize a church, it's important. But Christ has not sent us to preach the gospel of polity. How do we understand gender roles? Important. We should think through those things. But yet God has not sent us to preach the gospel of gender roles. It's a matter of emphasis. To be a biblically faithful church means we emphasize what is emphasized in the Bible and all the Bibles about the coming of Jesus, his pursuit of broken sinners, his atonement for sin, his conquering of death, and the fact that he will one day come back and establish his kingdom in full. So the first way that we prioritize what God prioritizes, we're faithful to scripture, is we emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. Second way, which is another way of emphasizing what the Bible emphasizes, is we also focus on what's clear in the Bible. And that's the hill we die on. Holding to the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, which we as a church do, that does not mean that all parts of Scripture are equally clear, nor does it mean that our interpretations are infallible or inerrant. And that's very important to distinguish. Too often, the guys who are the most vocal proponents of inerrancy seem to forget that it doesn't mean that their understanding of the Bible is therefore inerrant. The Bible we're trying to understand is inerrant, but we are fallen, easily deluded creatures. So let's prioritize the parts that are clear. What's pretty clear in the Bible? Well, a good place to start are what's called the ecumenical creeds, Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, the Apostles' Creed, which we say every other week. These are the things that Christians, not just in America, not just in the West, not just in the last 400 years, but for centuries, for thousands of years, have been saying, hey, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. This is what's clear from Scripture. We can agree on this. If you're outside this, whatever you are, it's not Christian. That's a good place to start. That's what's clear. What all Christians from all times have believed. But oftentimes, the secondary doctrines and issues that divide us, and we are in all kinds of divisions these days, the things that are divided us are oftentimes the things that aren't clear. Churches in Southern Baptist Convention are not dividing over whether Christ was divine and human. They're not dividing over how do we understand the Trinity. Well, I guess there's a little bit on that. That's more of a corollary. They're dividing over secondary issues that just aren't that clear. For example, let's raise the temperature a little bit here. What is the biblical teaching on how we should live through a pandemic? As far as I know, the Bible doesn't mention the word pandemic. There is no thou shalt live thus, thou shalt do this. We have biblical principles we try to live through, but it's not clear. And it's so hard to forget that. Example two, what is the biblical teaching for whom you should vote for? The word vote's not in the Bible. I guarantee you the Republican, Democratic, or Independent parties are not in the Bible. Again, we have principles we want to work off of, but it's just not as clear. What is the biblical teaching on racism? Other than that, it is bad, very bad. Not clear. There's room for good faith disagreements on some of the stuff. To be biblically faithful means that we'll prioritize and we'll emphasize first what is primary and clear in the Bible. And as a church, we'll need to come to convictions on secondary teachings, but those aren't the things we're going to emphasize. 
we're going to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. And when we come to our secondary matters, we'll hold those with grace and with charity. This is what I think means to be biblically faithful. In conclusion, we believe, we really believe as a church, that the internal and infinite God has spoken, has spoken in a way that we can understand and that we can know him. He hasn't just given us inspired thoughts of people, but we have the very voice of God. And because it's the voice of God, we can trust what it says. Completely. And what the Bible says most clearly and most emphatically is that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come to earth. We can have a relationship with God under his rule, a place where the lost are found, where the sick are made well, where the sinful are redeemed. And this kingdom is not just for the religiously devout, it's not just for those who are generally good and decent people, but it's for anyone, anyone who repents and believes in the forgiveness of sins that Jesus Christ has bought for us. This is what scripture tells us. This is what scripture emphasizes. This is what we we will be known for as a church. This is what we will devote ourselves to. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will make us a church that is known most of all for the gospel that we preach, that God has come near to sinful humans, has taken our sin upon himself, and has made atonement, that we can now enter into the presence of a righteous God with confidence, that we have been saved not by our discipline or our hard work or our avoidance of sin, but we've been saved by the scandalous grace of a God who loves us far more than we can fathom. And I pray that that gospel will take root in our hearts that will unleash us for fruitful ministry in our families, in our school, in our workplaces, and in this neighborhood. May we be a people who are faithful to your word. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.